All right, here's, a, here's an article that came out, thought that was interesting this week. Just thought I'd start with this. The hottest thing at church today. <laughs> what, what was that back there? Hey, there you go. According to a new study by Gallup, the hottest thing at church today is not the worship, not the pastor. It's not the smoke and lights. It's not the hip and relevant youth programs. It's not even the organic fair trade coffee at the cafe. The hottest thing at church today is the preaching. Not only is it the preaching, but a very specific form of it. Preaching based on the Bible. That's the newest thing, hottest thing. (laughs) And just like that, decades of church growth, bunkum is thrown under the bus. As Christianity Today says, despite a new wave of contemporary church buzzwords like relational, relevant, and intentional, people who show up on Sundays are looking for the same thing that has long anchored most services, preaching centered on the Bible says, the church growth movement established the goal of having as many people as possible profess faith in Jesus Christ. This is what I was taught in seminary too, by the way. To do this, it would need to make the church attractive to unbelievers. This demanded changing the services to make them seeker-friendly, changing the music to make it more contemporary, and even changing the gospel to make it less offensive. Of course, it also demanded changing the preaching to make it more uh, palatable, And that meant preaching themes and principles rather than preaching the Bible itself. Pragmatism is so ingrained in the very fabric of the church today that it's extremely difficult to root out. Churches that have been immersed in it have to battle tooth and nail against its seductions. They need to retrain themselves to look to what appears to work, but to what the Bible demands. It says it should come as no surprise that God's people want God's word. A baby wants nothing more than his mother's milk because he needs nothing more than his mother's milk. A Christian wants nothing more than God's word because there's nothing he needs more than God's word. The Christian may not know if no, <clears throat> may not know it or be able to verbalize it any more than the baby can, but within every true believer will be a deep hunger to be fed by spiritual food, food that is found only in the word of God. Those churches that committed to preaching endless series of sermonettes for Christianettes were starving their people. They were starving sheep in order to entertain goats. Uh, now Gallup assures us that we've gotten it wrong, that, that what Christians want is the straightforward preaching of the Bible. He's, and this guy that wrote this blog said, here's the thing, eventually Gallup or Barna will, or someone else will come up with a new poll that will display results and mere bandwagoners will veer to this new course. Their deep-rooted pragmatism will drive them to the next big thing. But people who are convinced uh, from the Bible that there is nothing better than to preach the Bible will stay the course. Even when the Bible-based preaching is the very last thing people want, these pastors will know it. It is the very first thing that they need. And saying that, we're going to teach the Bible today. Amen. yeah, let's just go into it. Uh, no comment needed. Um, so for those of you that are guests with us, we're, we're walking through the Gospels. Jesus is, uh, at this point, he's already done two miracles that nobody else could do. We call these the Messianic miracles. Uh, one be, uh, is that he healed a Jewish leper. 
The second being that he cast out demons from a mute, someone that was born, couldn't hear, couldn't speak. And so after he did this second messianic miracle that no one else could do, the Pharisees and the multitudes that followed the Pharisees, that being the Jewish nation, all said that he was doing these miracles under the power of Beelzebul, the evil one, that Jesus was healing people by the power of the devil. And so at this point, Jesus says, you've just blasphemed the spirit to his face, and so now you've been cut off as a nation, you've been cut off as a nation, not as individuals, but as a nation from hearing the gospel, from hearing the truth. And we pretty much know, based upon church history and world history, that that happened around 30 uh, A.D., and then... We also know that in 70 A.D., the Romans came in and destroyed the temple, killed 1.1 million Jews. It's like two generations. Like he said, you're going to be cut off from this thing. Because they wouldn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, was the Son of God. And so now, so that he has hidden this truth from them, he has now changed his total ministry, two things. He started teaching in parables. He started telling stories that they couldn't understand. But in private, he goes to his 12 disciples and he teaches them exactly what the parables mean because he wants them to understand. He's their, he's their teacher. He's their rabbi. They're his students. And he's wanting them to understand what these parables mean. So he explains them, and obviously we get to read them and understand them. The second thing that he does is he starts, instead of doing his miracles uh, publicly, he starts doing them privately. Again, in front of the disciples because he wants his disciples to see the power of God, the awe of God, and to see that they are able of doing this because of God working through them. So he starts doing these miracles based upon, watch this, the person's personal faith and their personal needs. And that's where we pick up today in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the region of Gerasenes. Now, I'm going to take you to a map real quick. And uh, we'll, we'll kind of, Todd, there's four slides here. This is obviously Europe. And then you've got down here Africa, continent-wise. Over here, you've got Asia. But right here, you see the little star. That actually uh, starred on my Google Maps is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So let's zoom in a little bit here. Now we're looking at Israel. We've just zoomed in. Here again is Jerusalem, is the Temple Mount. And you've got the Dead Sea, you've got the Jordan River, and you've got the Sea of Galilee. I'm pointing all this out so you can, those of you that can't see. Up here, this is modern-day Google Maps. You've got Lebanon, and over here you've got Syria. Let's zoom in a little bit closer. Now we've zoomed in to the top part, which this is the Sea of Galilee. And... Uh, up here is Capernaum. This is where Jesus did most of his ministry in those days. Back over here was Nazareth. That's his hometown, and we'll touch on that here at the end of the message today. But the Jordan River comes out of here and goes into the Dead Sea. Uh, one more slide. Zoom in a little bit closer. Now we're actually talking about this area that we just read about in Mark chapter 5. It's the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, I, I, now this is interesting if you, on Google Maps, you can see these dotted lines. 
But it says this is the ceasefire lines that were established in 1974 between Syria and Israel. Look at this. And then you've got this line right over here that comes up the Sea of Galilee. In 1949, Israeli and Syrian uh, armistice line. Like, this is when Israel was established as a state. I mean, like, is that, is that crazy? I mean, we're talking about, like, Old Testament here. We're, we're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. This is today. What happened back in Abraham and Isaac's Old Testament time is still being played out to this very day in 2017. We just had this week peace treaty between these areas, right? It's still going on. It's crazy, but this is all Bible stuff. <laughs> Why can't people see this? Why can't they see that this has happened for thousands of years? But let's get back to our story. This is the east side. If you go to Israel with me, I promise you that we will be in Capernaum and we'll eat uh, St. Peter's fish, which is tilapia. That's all it is. Because it's the only, they, we know it's tilapia because it's the only fish in the Sea of Galilee that can actually fit coins in its mouth. That's a story that you'll get to here later. All right, and then we'll come around here. Up here is the uh, Sermon on the Mount where that took place. J Jesus gave the Beatitudes. You can see that. But then we're going to come right over here where Jesus is talking. We'll actually climb this cliff. Don't worry. I had a 93-year-old woman with me five years ago, and she made it to the top. It's not that big of a deal. But this is that area right here on the east side of the Sea of Galilee that we're talking about. It says, as soon as he got out of the boat... A man, Matthew actually says that there were two men. But Mark and Luke say that there was one man. I, I kind of have a tendency, remember, to go with Luke because he was the doctor and he was the historian and he kind of wrote everything down. Matthew, he, he kind of like just summarizes it. He's writing to the Jews, and this is not about the Jews. This is about the Gentiles because on that map, uh, go back one more time, Todd. On that map, let me show you this. If this is the line, and this is Israel, everything over here is not Jewish. Jewish, Gentile. Even back then, Jesus on the east side is dealing in a Gentile area. All right? This is a Gentile story. Not Jewish. Watch this now. It says... As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit. Luke says demon-possessed. Now we've got movie material. Demon-possessed, he came out of the tombs and met him. Like, this is cave-like. This man doesn't live in a house. He lives in, tomb, in a tomb or tombs, and he's demon-possessed. It says, he lived in the tombs, and Luke says this, that he wore no clothes. <laughs> it's a naked man living in a cave. You picturing this, right? This is my whole deal, is make the Bible come alive to you. You got a demon-possessed naked man living in a cave. That's kind of scary, but wait, it gets scarier. Alright? I know, you got that in your mind. It says, no one was able to restrain him anymore even with chains, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, 
but had snapped off the chains and smashed the shackles. You got like the Hulk here. Naked Hulk in the cave, demon-possessed. I mean, think about this. This is a wicked dude and nobody wanted to be around him. It's like no one was strong enough to subdue him. And always, night and day, he was crying out among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. So now you've got this Hulk-like creature, naked. He, he can't be bound. He's living in the tombs. He's constantly crying out. And he's co- constantly hurting himself physically. We think cutting's like a new thing with our teenagers. This dude says he was doing it back then. This is like 30 AD. He's cutting himself. Because he's demon-possessed. He's like messed up. It says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. You, You picturing this? Like Jesus strolls up in that area, this wicked demon-possessed man, naked as can be, unshackled, comes out of the tombs, goes up to Jesus and kneels down before him. He's demon-possessed, and he knelt down before Jesus. Think about it. It says, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? A man is demon-possessed and recognizes that this is the son of God. That's crazy. What does that tell you? Even the demons realize that Jesus is the son of God. The, the Pharisees can't see that he's the son of God, but the demons can see that he's the son of God. Are you kidding me? He says, I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Jesus looks at him and says, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Again, I don't know what Jesus' inflection was there. I don't know if he like, yelled it i don't know if he spoke it calmly i would love to know how jesus said these things but he said come out of the man you now watch this you unclean spirit he says this what's your name what is your name and this is the way this is the way that they always cast out demons you 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 remember Jesus has done a a messianic miracle where he actually cast out the demons of a mute, someone who couldn't speak. But what the Pharisees and the Jews would do when they would cast out demons is they would actually ask the name, ask the demon, what's your name? And the person would tell them, and then you would say, come out whatever your name is. They'd call them out by name. But if you're a mute and you can't talk and you can't like tell them what your name is, you can't call them out. But the Messiah could, and he did. So look, he uses, what is your name? This guy's not mute. He says, my name is Legion. Legion. That means that there's about somewhere between 2,000 and 6,000 men. 
this guy's demon-possessed with split personalities. Multiple personalities. His name is Legion. He says, my name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. What does that sound like in the movie? You hear me? What does that sound like? That's freaky. You got a naked, Hulk-like man. Crazy. My name is Legion. He says, and he kept begging him to send him out of the region. Now, Luke actually uses the word abyss. The the demon-possessed man says, he says, don't send me to the abyss. Let me take you to Revelation and tell you what the abyss is. Revelation chapter 9, 1 says this, The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key to the shaft of the abyss was given to him. The word abyss that is used by Luke in this same scripture is the exact same word that's used in Revelation talking about the end times. And in Revelation chapter 11, verse 7, it says, When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them, conquer them, and kill them. Is this describing the same abyss that this demon-possessed person doesn't want to go to? Absolutely. And the last verse in Revelation 21, 1 through 3, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. I just sat here and read about end times, and we're not going into the end times, but I want you to understand how scary this abyss is that this demon-possessed man does not want to go to. Now, let's go back to Mark chapter 5. In verse 7, it says, Now a large herd of pigs was there. (laughs) Poor pigs. Feeding on the hillside. The The demons begged him, Send us to the pigs so we may enter them. We don't want to go to the abyss. I I don't want to go to that area. Just put us in the pigs. If you're going to ca- if you're going to cast us out, if you're going to cast us out of this man, if you're going to heal this man, don't send us to the abyss. Just put us in the pigs. We'll be happy in the pigs. But don't send us there. <laughs> the demons get it. it says and he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. Movie. What's that look like? The spirit's coming out, out of this man, this naked man, just like whoosh, into these herd of pigs. It says, and the herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep. 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs. That's a lot of bacon. It says, And the herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. Now, what does that tell you? Here, here's what happened. Demon-possessed man, he's as wicked as can be. He says, Jesus, uh, we understand who you are. 
Will you not send us to the abyss? Just put us in the pigs. The demons go into the pigs, and the pigs go off the cliff, kill themselves. Because <laughs> even the pigs knew it was better to die than to be possessed by these demons. That's crazy. Even a pig knew that. That's how, this, how much torment this man went through. Now watch this. This is just a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful... Last night we... Uh, this is popping my head. Last night we were uh, at the Mercy Me concert. And, and if you haven't heard... Uh, well, one, the song I Can Only Imagine. You need to get your head out of the sand. But <laughs> uh, they're making a movie about this song. About Bart's life as a teenager. And uh, he talks about his dad being abusive as a child. And then he got cancer... And then he came to know Jesus, and he became this godly man that just Bart fell in love with. And so when I see, when I think about this story, I'm sure Dad's uh, Bart's dad is not like this naked in the cave or whatever. But just the, just the fact that you can go from uh, an abused relationship to actually loving this man, this is this is the picture that I get here. It says. The men who tended them ran off and reported the town and the countryside, and the people went to see what happened. They came to Jesus, and they saw the man who had been demon-possessed by the legion. This is a man that everybody knew about, and they stayed away from the vicinity. They just let him alone. They didn't want to be around him, but they all knew he, who he was. It says, The eyewitnesses described to them what happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave the region. Like, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed kept begging to be with him. It's like, Jesus, just let me go hang out with you. This is a Gentile man, demon-possessed. He's got clothes on now. It's totally different. Jesus, I can't thank you enough, and I really want to hang out with you. I want to be with you. I, you've obviously changed my life. He's begging him, it says. But he would not let him. Jesus said no. You know why Jesus said no? Because he was a Gentile and Jesus came for the Jews. He was a Gentile. Instead, he told him, go back home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Here's the, the naked Hulk-like guy screaming, cutting himself. Nobody wants to be around him. And he's walking around town as a decent gentleman with clothes on. And everybody's going, what? That, my friends, is the awe of God when you see that. That's the awe. That's crazy. Now, let's get this straight. Because you, because you read all throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, go and tell them what God has done in your life. And then other times he's like, don't tell anybody what I just did. Go tell, don't tell. Go. It sounds like Jesus is kind of whacked here. But remember, remember this. This is a Gentile. The Jews have already been cut off. He's going back, it says, Luke says he goes back to the Decapolis, which is the ten towns that he's around. And he starts going, look, look what Jesus, the Son of God, did to me. 
he rescued me, he saved me, he took the demons out of me, and all the people in those ten towns just started like talking about Jesus. Because the Gentiles had ears to hear. The Jews did not. The Gentiles had ears to hear. It says, so he went out and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. The awe. The awe of God. It's the same story that's found in Luke chapter 8. Paralleled there. So let's go on. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Changing stories here. It says, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side... Jesus was on the east side. Now he's got in a boat and he's going over to the west side. This is where modern day Tiberias is. Go with me to Israel. That's the first night we stay. We stay in a hotel in Tiberias. I'm good at promoting this thing, you know. When Jesus crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. Luke actually says the crowd welcomed him because they were expecting him. Hey, Jesus is coming. You want to get healed? You want to see some pretty cool things? You better be here. So when Jesus got there, they were like, Yeah, Jesus is here. He's here. He's here. <laughs> I can't wait to say that. One of the synagogue leaders, if you're a synagogue leader, you're a what? Pharisee or Jew. Remember, this is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, we're now back into Jewish nation, Jewish territory. It says, one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. <laughs> Jewish synagogue leader fell at Jesus' feet. Why did he fall at Jesus' feet? Hmm. Let's think about this for a second. And kept begging him. <laughs> he wanted something. He fell at Jesus' feet because he wanted something. My little daughter is at death's door. Oh, now it makes sense. Come and lay your hands on her so she can get well and live. Now, being a Jewish leader, he had to be torn. He, he really had to be torn. Between... What he taught, what he taught as a Pharisee, the law, Jesus is not the Messiah, versus what he believed, this guy really has the possibility of being the Messiah because I've seen him do the Messianic miracles, and he's also torn, but I want my daughter to live. He's got like three things going on here. What do I do? And so he's really at the mercy of Jesus. Save my daughter. So Jesus went with him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being at the feet of Jesus, begging him, come save my daughter, and Jesus takes the first step toward your daughter and your heart just like, oh, could it be? <laughs> so Jesus went with him and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. We change stories right here in the middle of a story. It says, A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. This is a lady we're talking about menstrual bleeding. Just continuous bleeding. She's gone to doctor after doctor after doctor. I can relate to that. Not the menstrual bleeding, but... 
going doctor, 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 trying to fix my neck. All right, But she's done everything that she possibly can. And now this Jesus, this miracle worker, this guy, that she, i got to get close to him. Said she spent everything that she had and was not helped at all. Every penny she had, she spent on trying to stop herself from bleeding. On the contrary, she became worse. (laughs) She went to the doctors and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And having heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his robe. For she said, if I can just touch his robes, I'll be made well. Luke says that she actually touched the tassel, just the tassel probably one of these prayer tassels that the Jews wore. She touched this tassel, and watch what it says. It says, instantly, instantly her flow of blood ceased. Like, who's going to know that but her? But it just stopped like that. Touch, stop. And she sensed in her body that she was cured of this affliction. It says, at once Jesus realized in himself that the power had gone out from him. That's it's kind of crazy, but I believe that that's true. I think when Jesus spent time with uh, the feeding the 3,000 and the 5,000 and doing different ministries, you always find that he like goes away and hangs out with his father. It's kind of like, He literally got drained. But hanging out with the Father just restores him for the next batch. The next day. Go out and do the same thing. He literally felt power, energy go out from him. And this is awesome. He turned around in the crowd and he said, Who touched my robes? (laughs) Come on. Like Jesus didn't already know that. You don't think he knew who touched his robe? He's the son of God. The whole reason he says, who touched my robes, was for the benefit of the 12 teenage boys around him. He's wanting to wanting him to see something happened here. His disciples said to him, come on, Jesus, you see the crowd pressing against you, and you say, who touched me? There's like, they're, they're rubbing up against you. There's... There's thousands of people here. There's a bunch of people that have touched you. (laughs) Jesus said, who touched my robes? And Luke said, they all denied it. (laughs) I didn't didn't, didn't touch you. Not me. I didn't touch you. (laughs) You got people, you know people are just reaching out and touching them. And and everybody's like, not me. And Peter's the one that said, come on, Jesus. Of course it's Peter. You'll, you'll hear a lot more entertaining things about Peter as we go through these Gospels. Luke 8.46 actually says this, Someone did touch me, said Jesus. I know that power has gone out from me. <laughs> Can you imagine? Who touched me? Come on, Jesus. And Everybody's touching you. No, not us, not us. I know somebody touched me. Who touched me? 
then eventually, eventually, this lady, it says, so he was looking around to see who had done this. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came with fear and trembling. Just touched his tassel. Fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Not like, I went to this doctor and they said this, and I went to... No, that's not the truth that she's telling them. Luke 8 says this, 847 says, In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly cured. I just had an issue and I needed to touch your robe, so I did, and now I'm cured. Told him the whole thing. And Jesus looks at her, and he corrects her. <laughs> he corrects her theology here. She said, I just needed to touch your robe, and I knew I'd be healed. He said, daughter, your faith has made you well. It wasn't the touching of the robe. It was your faith. Your faith that I'm the Messiah. That's what made you well. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. You're good. You're good. You're healed. No more. Just because you believed. You believe that I'm the Son of God. You believe that I'm the Messiah. We're in Jewish country. Remember, the Jews as a nation are blacked out, but not as individuals. Individuals still can know. Obviously, Jarius has come to save his daughter. Then it says this, while he was still speaking, Jesus is talking and people come up and they, they interrupt him. It says, while he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house. This would be Jarius. We're back to that other story. While he's on his way to Jarius' house, he had this whole episode. And now his servants have come to him and said to Jarius himself, your daughter's dead. <laughs> she is stone cold. Why bother the teacher anymore? Just let him go about doing his thing. She's gone. But when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, Hey, don't be afraid. Just believe. I'll heal her. I'll Luke says, he said, I'll heal her. He literally told the man, I'll, I'll take care of her. But she's dead. She's stone cold. You're going to take care of her? What's this dad thinking? Is he believing? Is he doubting? What would you be doing? It says, <clears throat> He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. And obviously, Luke says, the father and the mother of this daughter. Hey, everybody else? I want my three guys, Peter, James, and John. And you'll see that that's the inner circle. You got, you got 100 disciples, then you got 12 disciples, and then you got Peter, James, and John, and then you got the beloved, you got John. But this is the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. These are the guys. He says, They came to the leader's house and saw commotion. 
All the people are there. In Luke, it says the flute players were there. I guess they played taps with flutes back then. (laughs) They're playing death music at the door of this house. And all the weeping going on. She's dead. She's died. People weeping and wailing loudly. He went into them and said, why, why are you making a commotion? <laughs> why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, just asleep. She's just asleep. And they started laughing at him. They literally started laughing at him, but he, he just like put them all outside. You guys clear the house, clear the house. You're going to sit here and laugh and make fun of this whole thing. You're going to laugh. Just just get out. Just get out. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, Peter, James, and John. And he entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talithakum. Talithakum. Which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. I say to you, get up. What's the dad doing as soon as he says to Lithkum? Come on, come on, come on, come on. Immediately the girl got up. Luke says her spirit returned. Hey, wh- what, do we, what do we learn when you die here on earth back in those times before the cross? Where does the spirit go? Sheol, the underworld. There's a, is, a, is a temporary waiting place. Abraham's bosom on one side, hell on the other side. I'm assuming that Jairus' daughter's spirit went to Sheol and Abraham's bosom. But now it says, Luke says, her spirit returned. Came back. Just like Jonah. It says, immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. Astounded because now they had just seen a dead person come to life, risen from the dead. The awe of God. The awe. What do you say? Then they gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and and said that she should be given something to eat. The girl's hungry. (laughs) That's awesome. That they would they would write this. Feed Jesus said, feed the girl, take care of her. She's alive, she's hungry. But don't tell anybody. Why? Because now we're in Jewish territory. And we don't want them to know what the Messiah has done. Don't tell over here. You can tell over there, but don't tell over here. This was all personal, inside the house, not public. Then it says, Matthew actually says, and the news spread throughout the whole area. Don't tell, but the news spread anyway. You know how it goes. Of course, if you go out publicly say they're dead, and all of a sudden she's walking around, of course they're going to talk about it. Real quick, Matthew 9. It says, as Jesus went from there, two blind men followed him, shouting, Have mercy on us, son of David. These men recognized that he is the Messiah. Because remember, the Messiah comes through the lineage of David. And they just said, Son of David. Like you coming through the the lineage of David, you have to be the Messiah. 
when he entered the house, and again, when he entered the house, he goes from public to private. The healing again and now is based upon personal faith and personal need. The blind man approached him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe I can do this? Yes, Lord, they answered. Two guys, probably in years. And yes, Lord, I believe. Then he touched their eyes. Did he need to touch their eyes? Absolutely not. But he touched their eyes, four eyes. Saying, let it be done. For you, according to your faith. Because you believe. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, be sure that no one finds out. Why? Jewish. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout the whole area. How do you keep it quiet when the awe of God is apparent? How do you not talk about it? How do you not share it? Jesus says, shh, shh, shh. don't tell anybody. Ha! I was blind. What am I supposed to say? I can see now. Something happened. It was Jesus. Just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak. Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh, you hear that? You hear that? A demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. When the demon had been driven out, the man spoke, and the crowds were amazed, saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. It's happened one other time. Jesus did it. A few weeks ago, we talked about it. It's another one of those messianic miracles. No one's ever seen this. It's because he's the Messiah. It's because he's the Son of God. It's the confirmation. And it's the second time we've seen this specific miracle performed. It says, but the Pharisee said, he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. He's doing this under the power of Beelzebub. And then I close with this. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. It says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. His hometown being Nazareth. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is the wisdom given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter's the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph, which is actually translated Joseph, Judas and Simon. And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Like, literally, these people just said Jesus has half-brothers and half-sisters. Obviously, when Jesus was born, Mary was impregnated by God, not by Joseph. And she had Jesus. But then, as they were married, they had kids. So now, these, even though they have the same mother, they have different fathers, God being the father of Jesus. Not Joseph. Joseph was like his earthly father. So he's got half-brothers and he's got half-sisters. It says they were offended by him. Then Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. Like Jesus said, I'm back home. And my people, my own people don't even believe that I'm the Son of God. They watched him grow up. Ah, he can't be the Son of God. He's Joseph's son. He's just a carpenter's son. Watch this. So he was not able to do any miracles there 
Jesus was not able to do. Come on. Jesus was not able to do any miracles in Nazareth. It wasn't because of him. Trust me. It wasn't because of him. It says he was not able to do any miracles there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. The reason he wasn't able to do miracles in his hometown, they didn't believe. They didn't believe. You kidding me? After all that you've seen, after all that you've done, you've even set up these messianic miracles and said, look, if he does these, he's the Messiah. That's their whole unbelief that causes them to miss the awe of God. Truly, I truly, as I come to understand the Gospels, the more I believe, the more I'm able to see this all, not only in the Scripture, but just everyday life. I, I really pray that you're able to look and see what God's doing. It's not just happenstance, y'all. God is alive, and he is moving, and he is working in us as believers. I truly believe that. And if you open your eyes, you're going to see some pretty amazing things. Father, I pray that you would uh, just do that. I pray that you just open our eyes, that you allow us to see. Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just their stories that they were able to communicate effectively and uh, we know uh, what an adventure you lived here those those brief years here on earth but thanks for coming here and just uh, showing us who you are showing us how much you love us and uh, I pray for those in this room Lord if uh, they could experience that same awe that I could experience that same awe that you would do that this week. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.